happy blue year and welcome to episode 19 of How We Win. All over the country, ordinary people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to jump in and make a difference right now. We have a great episode today to kick off 2020, and you aren't going to want to miss a minute of it, I promise. Our guest is communications expert and host of the podcast, Brave New Words, Annette Shinkur Asario. She talks about race class narrative, how well our presidential candidates are communicating, how she advised the Senate Dems to talk about impeachment, how to be effective when we talk to voters. She basically taught us how to talk, how to talk right. (laughs) Then we're going to get you into action. Swing Left has a national organizing call this Sunday, Mm -hmm. and uh, we're following up with house parties all over the country. The best antidote to anxiety is action, and it's time to get 2020 ready. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And and this this is How How We Win. Win. 2020! (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back. How was your holiday? It was great. Just a reminder to people, (laughs) if you have not gotten your flu shot... Oh, no. You should do that. Did you have the flu? I did. I got my flu shot so long ago. I was worried that I it had too. run out. Oh, okay. Um, but not everybody in my family had that flu shot. And let me tell you. So it was a sick household. That's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was fine, but. Well, bad for them. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I don't care. You know, but... How was yours? It was nice. It was nice. Had family in town. Loved having the holidays in Los Angeles. Yeah. Because everybody leaves. Oh, so nice. So it's everything you love about LA without the traffic. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it was great looking back on the decade, Mm -hmm. too. This feels like a decade because right now we're so in the thick of it that's Mm -hmm. defined by Trump. Yeah. But we had six years of Barack Obama as our president in this decade. Right. And uh, accomplished a lot of really great things. I really see a future that is bright for us. Mm -hmm. When you look at history and the things that we have walked through as a country, we have walked through hard times and we've come out stronger on the other end. But it's a scary time right now. It's a scary time. But to your point about making it through the dark places, it was always people who looked at the world around them and said, I'm going to make a change. I'm going to do my part that led us through it. It was always the groups of people working together who have have really worked hard to make this country the place that they envision. That's what's so great about this country is we we are constantly making it the place that we want to live in. That's a really great point. If you look at history, these great movements for change mm-hmm. uh, didn't start with politicians enacting laws. They started with people. Yes. People standing up, people making their voices heard, organizing together. Right. And so that's what we have to do again. Obviously, in the news right now, it's it's scary. It's kind of like worst case scenario for the Trump presidency to see his actions in Iran General Soleimani being assassinated. Well, I'll tell you what's been frustrating is that Republicans have once again used something so serious that we all need to be 
contemplating and thinking long term about as as a tool to divide once again. And, you know, Nikki Haley was on Fox Ugh. News earlier this week. Yeah. Uh, you Sorry, know, did I say that out loud? Call, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> basically repeating Trump talking points that a, a lot of a disturbing number of Republicans have gotten in line with, identifying Democrats as a whole as traitorous or as mourning the death of a horrible person when what Democrats have come out and said was this is somebody who was incredibly problematic and dangerous. Yeah. But why now and why in this method and what's coming next? So the idea that if you question what this president does at this point, you're automatically a traitor. You're automatically bad for our country. You're automatically not a patriot is a really dangerous way of communicating this divisiveness that we have right now. Yeah, really, really well put. And you know you should question. You shouldn't blindly follow any I'll any administration. You should question everything. <laughs> but what this president has done to erode any bit of trust that we would have in the government is right. just really remarkable. It's terrible, you know, because he's just a, a patent liar, mm -hmm. right? So you can't trust anything. And and the fact that none of Congress was consulted or it was just a unilateral move and that it still hasn't been explained and all this stuff just goes to the core of why this quote unquote president <laughs> right. is so unfit to serve and has made us all I mean is making the world a more dangerous and unstable place yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So also we need to acknowledge the apocalyptic scene in Australia right now, mm -hmm. these devastating fires. This is climate change that is causing this. Right. The temperatures of like 120 degrees while these fires are going on. Oh it's God. just it's awful. So the most important and impactful thing we can do is elect some representatives who believe the climate change is real and want to do the work to combat it. Right. Who who just believe in science and who and believe facts. in science and facts exactly. <laughs> yeah. This is science. These are facts. Um, Annette talks a little bit about the talking points for climate change and how they serve the cause or don't serve the cause. It's really fascinating. Yeah, I, I can't wait for people to hear this interview coming up. Yeah, everyone, please, please, please listen to the entire interview. Um, I know you really only tune into the podcast to hear our hot takes. <laughs> to hear our hot takes. But listen beyond those. <laughs> I know we're really entertaining. It's like, okay, they've stopped talking. I don't need to hear the expert that they brought in. <laughs> I feel like I have my fill. But no, seriously, she covered a lot of really important information about how we talk to voters, right. how we talk to volunteers, mm -hmm. um, how we talk about impeachment, how we talk about issues of race and how that brings us together. It's going to make you a better volunteer. It's mm -hmm. going to make you a better organizer. Right. It's um, going to make you a more effective human in general. Listen to the entire interview. Can't wait. And then, of course, you know, not a pod goes by that we don't talk about impeachment just because it continues to be so wild and disorganized in D.C. Yeah, and we can't let this wag the dog, yeah. you know, overshadow the crucial work that's going on. Right. Reminder, Trump has still been impeached. He has. He's yeah. been impeached. And now we're waiting on the Senate to hold, a, to commit to holding a trial with witnesses. And... 
John Bolton no. has said. <laughs> How I'll many times are we going to mention this guy's name on our freaking podcast? Listen, the dude knows the details of the drug deal that went down. We need to no, hear you from know him. I, I don't know. You, you know, in Star Wars, uh, that guy, the, the I don't know where he's from, but the alien who goes, it's a trap. <laughs> that's, that's how I feel. You don't There's trust a, Bolton? No. Ironically enough, I don't yeah. trust John Bolton. Yeah. I don't, you know, like, look, nobody should be waiting for John Bolton to <laughs> save the day, okay? Um, and and frankly, they, it's kind of suspect, the timing yeah. of him saying that, because he's wanted to invade and start a war with Iran for a long time now, right? right. That's That's been his thing. So yeah. Trump kind of does what he wanted to get done there for a long time, and all of a sudden he's like, I'll testify. Yeah. He's so sneaky, but I want to know it's secret. With a mustache that big, <laughs> he's got to be holding some secrets in there. <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> so McConnell's like, no, to okay, just Bolton. We'll let just Bolton, Bolton come in and share what he knows. If McConnell agrees to it, then I'll get suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, We've got some work to do. I'm excited. It's finally 2020. It's time to get to work. Time to get to work. Look, last year, we had a lot of work to do, too. Yeah. We knew the importance and value of early organizing. Mm-hmm. But now it's 2020. And people are going to start waking up and realizing that this election is happening. We have the Iowa caucus mm-hmm. in a month, less yeah, than a month. less than a month. So it's all happening. We need you to get involved right now. A lot of people did a lot of hard work and were very successful in 2019. Hello, but, Virginia. Hello, Virginia. But people were busy, okay? It was a busy year. There was a lot going on. Maybe people were waiting for 2020, and that's okay. Yeah. But we now we need them. Now we need them. Yeah. So Swing Left has our first 2020 organizing call. Mm-hmm. It's uh, this Sunday. You can go directly to the swingleft.org website. Mm -hmm. It's right on the front page to register for this call. We're going to talk about our 2020 strategy, how you can get involved. Uh, Ethan Todras Whitehill, who uh, did a great interview on our podcast, Mm -hmm. one one of the early ones that we did. He's the executive director of Swing Left. He's going to be on the call. So is Tori Taylor, who is our head of political and organizing. You've also heard her on the podcast. Well, it's a Swing Left podcast. (laughs) These are our peeps, but they're important to hear from. Who you haven't heard from is um, Marisa Kanoff, who is our national field director. She's also going to be on the call. We're going to be sharing what the plan is for 2020, how you can get involved. And then we're following up the following weekend. Okay. We're launching, uh, that's the weekend of the 18th, 19th, uh, house parties all over the country to get organized and build your local groups. So your call to action is to join the call this Sunday. Go to Mm swingleft.org and then look for a house party. If you don't see one in your neighborhood or someplace convenient, launch your own house party. This is such a great idea because you can hear the strategy on one weekend and then the next weekend you can figure out what your game plan is to get involved. Exactly. And by the way, we have a full toolkit for the house party. So it's not like, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? We have guides for you to help all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Hosting house parties is super fun. Yeah. 
get you you can really get a lot of people involved and engaged. So And you can get people that that you would be surprised that you didn't think would uh-huh. really want to get engaged, but you know, when you cast a wider net through your community and like I'm we're gonna have a little wine and cheese party or beer and pizza party and um and talk about the plan for twenty twenty you'd be surprised at who will show up. So um, don't be afraid to cast a wide net to invite your friends and neighbors, community members who haven't been involved yet because Mm -hmm. now's the time to get them involved. Great. Can't wait. So this interview with Anat, she's just brilliant. And I I think I'm going to echo what you said. It's going to make you a better communicator when you're you're hosting your house party, you're talking to voters at the door, but it's also going to make you a really good listener where you're going to start looking at quotes and tweets that people are putting out and say like, Oh, okay. What's the strategy behind this? Mm -hmm. So this is, this interview is so instructive and helpful. Let's take a listen. Anat Shankar Osorio is a communications expert whose work is challenging the way organizations and political figures talk about the most pressing issues of our time. Anat is the author of the acclaimed book, Don't Buy It, The Trouble with Talking Nonsense About the Economy. She's also the host of the fascinating podcast, Brave New Words. Anat, thank you for taking the time to join us. Fresh from D.C. Thank you so much for having me. What were you uh, up to in D.C.? A whole host of things. I was briefing the what they call the Senate chiefs, so the chiefs of staff of the Democratic senators, on how to talk about impeachment, which is obviously a question on lots of people's minds. And then mm-hmm. I was doing a series of trainings for different advocates, one cohort um, working on changing public perception on opioid addiction and hmm. overdose. It's really, really intense and actually pretty incredible experience um, training with them. Uh, And then I did another training for people who are working big old campaign to fight pharma. And Uh. then finally, I was uh, moderating a panel at the AFL-CIO with Rebecca Traster and Karine Jean-Pierre. Just a so just a little uh, (laughs) leisurely jaunt to DC. (laughs) Yeah, just dealing with most important pressing issues yeah. <laughs> that mankind is facing right now. Well, I didn't do a climate thing. You didn't so do climate. So let's, yeah. not, let's not exaggerate. <laughs> there, there's still time left in the week. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's Thursday. <laughs> well, speaking of the pressing issues facing us, um, why did you think a focus on communications was the most effective contribution that you could make? Yeah. I often say to people that there are a lot of things that are not under our control. We can't control what our opposition says. Mm -hmm. We cannot control how much money they have. We cannot control the fact that they dominate most media and therefore can put that message out. Uh, We can't control lots and lots of things. But the words that we use and the order in which we use them Hmm. are entirely under our domain. And so for me, looking for an entry point um, into how to be a more effective change agent. Uh, Holly Minch, who's a comms consultant, she refers to her work as helping do-gooders do better. Mm. And, you know, it's also just where my academic expertise lies is in the analysis of language and then adding that together with empirical testing. Uh, Yeah, that's where I sit. 
I'm extremely self-conscious about every word that comes out of my mouth you right now, be. by the way. Just... <laughs> Deeply important that this be the most uncomfortable conversation. I can see you that silently judging ob- everything I it's say. It's not silent. I don't know why you're saying. Full on judging. Yeah. Full on judging. No, I will be pronouncing my judgments. Oh, okay. so we'll have that to look forward to at the end of the interview. Yeah. Well, the the interesting thing about your work, though, is it's really the you know the opposite. Steve's teasing you. It's your work is so accessible, and sort of lays out how people can look at their words and decide what order to arrange them in. What are the benefits to to approaching it that way? Yeah, I mean, I sometimes joke. I will say to my clients, "You pay me to tell you that words mean things," and oftentimes the ideas and suggestions that I come up with for reframes, I almost know that it's going to be right when people say, oh, obviously, Mm. right? Like, how could we not have been saying that all along? So I'll give you an example. Mm. Um, When we did message testing years and years ago, and I wish I could say this is an example that's been, uh, you know, really well adopted with discipline. That is not the case. But when we were looking at the immigrant rights debate, and I did a, a pretty extensive language analysis. And what I noticed was that in the status quo discourse, there was very little about immigrating in the immigration debate. There was almost nothing about moving. Okay. When we asked everybody, how would you describe who an immigrant is? Unsurprisingly, most of them said, a person who moves. Lo and behold, when we went into the testing, when we tested the difference between a message that says, the same is true today as has been throughout history, people move to make Mm -hmm. life better for themselves. It's hard to move. takes courage. Immigrant Americans move here for the promise of freedom and opportunity in this country. You know, America's supposed to be the land of the free and the home of the brave. That's a good thing. So let's make it that way. When you hold up people move against nation of immigrants, which Mm -hmm. is a dominant frame in immigrant rights messaging, Mm -hmm. there's no comparison. Nation of immigrants does not work. And it doesn't work for many reasons. Number one, it is insulting to many African Americans because it implies a volition that was not there. Mm-hmm. It's insulting to Native Americans for reasons I think are abundantly clear. Right. Mm-hmm. And it is not rooted in the lived experience of enough of our audience. It, generally speaking, around 30% of U.S. adults are foreign-born. So when you're talking to somebody about immigrating, most likely, statistically, they didn't. Most likely they were mm-hmm. born here. You're talking in, about their grandparents or whatever. Yeah. You're talking about an experience that they may have heard of or read about or even had conversations about but didn't live. Mm-hmm. When you're talking to them about moving, right? around 70% of U.S. adults don't live in the county of their birth. Americans are incredibly mobile. We move a lot. That really differentiates us from Europeans, right, who kind of stick closer to home. Hmm. And so people understand the experience of moving. And actually, one of the most exciting new pieces of research, and I'm putting cart before the horse because it's not fully out, but People's Action has done um, an incredible job doing a multi-state canvas, a deep canvas in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and North Carolina, trying to change people's minds through conversation, story sharing. Um, And the results are not fully out, but... Uh, around the idea of universal single-payer health care that includes undocumented immigrants, so a high bar to move people to. And when we were designing the canvas, I just sort of weighed in. I, I didn't do the work. I just was an advisor. I was like, when you ask the immigration question, don't ask, you know, do you know an immigrant? Mm-hmm. Ask, do you know a person who has moved here? Mm-hmm. It's 
really actually very distinct. Hmm. Can you explain what deep canvassing is? Yeah. yeah. So deep canvassing is instead of the canvassing I think most people will be familiar with, which is where you knock on the door and you say, I'm out here talking to voters about issue Mm-hmm. Or I'm out here talking to voters about this candidate. Right. A deep canvas is a story share canvas. It was a methodology um, is really deeply sort of implemented and studied by a guy at Stanford named David Brockman. It involves sharing a story. So, for example, it was used in marriage equality mm-hmm. around a story. You know, can you think of a time where you felt bullied or left out? And the canvasser will share a story of that type from their own life, they will solicit from the person behind the door, that kind of story. And from there, they will move into the issue. Um, It was used uh, experimentally around changing people's minds, around people who are transgender using uh, the bathroom that they feel that they Mm -hmm. should, again, in another form of story sharing. So in this story share, it was partly um, talking about a story of knowing somebody who'd moved here and talking about a story... Uh, of a time that you have needed care or a time that you've had a hard time getting care and needed it. So that's a deep canvas. That's interesting. Um, In the early days of Swing Left, we actually piloted some deep canvas scripts. We went up to Simi Valley to talk to straight-up Republicans and uh, not about specific issues but about values and connecting on that. But it was it was still pretty broad. Like obviously the marriage equality, deep canvassing, that was very effective. It was a specific issue that they were really working on. And it sounds like healthcare, that's really interesting to hear how that how that goes. In this case, it was it was a bit broad and also needed the canvassers really needed a lot of training around it. It's unreal how much training you have to give yeah. people. It's yeah. it's really and you know, credit to to the folks, Josh Calla and David Brockman and others who really are doing a lot of work in that. It's it's a lot of training. What they were looking for and the reason that I was asked for my two cents was they were using uh, a narrative that I was the lead researcher for called the race class narrative to try mm-hmm. to sort of change these people's minds. And um, what's really exciting to me was just how effective it's looking. That's great. I can't wait to see the results of that. Yeah. I think the the messaging that the average person right now is familiar with is the messaging coming from the presidential candidates. Is there anybody who you're seeing who you feel like they're the strongest at the type of messaging that you'd advise? And is there someone who needs a little bit more work? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say, like, there there are strengths and weaknesses. It's not like a, you get an A and you get a D. It's like, you're solid on this. You're weak yeah. over there. Okay. So... Um, to put some meat on those bones, I would say um, Elizabeth Warren has been incredibly good and solid on the race class narrative, which I can describe and talk about, um, which sure. is a way of linking together issues of racial and economic justice mm-hmm. in a way that we have tested and demonstrated many, many times over now, actually both acts as a persuasion tool and a mobilization tool. And gets rid of this age old question of whether we should be, you know, trying to 
woo the famed Obama to Trump voter that we're all supposed to be chasing after in the Midwest, or we should be focusing on turning people out. It turns out there's actually a narrative that does both at the same time. And I can say more about that. But she really does um, a pretty consistently excellent job of marrying the issues of race and class in a way that is very compelling. On the flip side, she does tend to do something that I call sell the recipe and not the brownie, which is not advisable. Um, hmm. So easy to understand. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know so, exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Um, that that analogy uh, actually was created. Um, I, I got that analogy from a California pollster named Dave Metz and just – I will often advise clients, like, look at what you've said. Are you selling the brownie or the recipe? Mm -hmm. Because we know that when we ask people things like, do you support national paid family leave? The majority of Americans say yes. But when we say instead, do you think everyone should be there the first time their newborn smiles? Way more people say yes, right? One one is the recipe and one is the brownie. Mm -hmm. And what I will often tell people is that your policy is not your message. Your policy is something you should talk about and know about and think about and have really solid, but that's an inside voice kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Your policy should not that's be your, taken. That's your answer to how you're going to get to your message. Right. And so what you should be selling, basically doing a message that says we can have nice things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that sounds facile. So there are other people, I think Bernie sometimes does a better job on selling the brownie rather than the recipe. Um, And then there's one other element that I would highlight, which is sort of, there are multiple things that a presidential campaign story needs to do. And one of those things is that it needs to provide a role for the adherent, for the follower, for the supporter. They need to be part of the story. Barack Obama did this incredibly well, right? Yes, we can. We will do this together. Mm -hmm. You know, it was really- We are the change we seek. Yeah. Paraphrasing Obama, it's a bad thing to do. Now I'm being judged again. (laughs) (laughs) Actually never stopped. So the again, (laughs) see, I'm judging you even for that because words mean things. Like that implies some sort of discontinuity. Those words meant I was making a joke. (laughs) It's being jokey. It's probably great that I'm being this antagonistic at the get-go <laughs> on your podcast that you will be editing. I've earned it. I've earned it. That That's true. <laughs> People yeah. may never hear these words. Yeah, so, I'm yeah. probably asking for the worst possible cut here. <laughs> really good communication strategy on my part. Everyone should probably discount no, the advice I'm giving. I'm yeah. leaving it in. I'm leaving it all in. All right. It's fair. Um, <laughs> so you were talking about who's really good at selling the brownie and also including the volunteer, including the people who are going to engage in the campaign in the message. Yeah. So for example, with Warren, you know, I think making shifts from she, you know, the the famed line, which she rightly, you know, has Mm -hmm. has claimed as her own, getting admonished. Nevertheless, she persisted. Mm -hmm. I think it would be so easy to say, nevertheless, we persisted. And, because there is a narrative of that campaign, because campaigns themselves have narratives, right? right, of her campaign as sort of the little engine that could, that just keeps chugging along and kind of powering it through and, you know, gaining little by little. I mean, what's happening more recently, one can argue. But I mean, that's that is a story about that campaign, that it's been like a little engine. And so to shift away from her as this central figure that persists 
and rather say, we persisted. We are the campaign that persists. That's an easy sort of narrative tie together. Mm-hmm. Uh, another narrative tie that they could do if they wanted would be to capture this idea of planning, which, I mean, you can sort of see that as selling the recipe and not the brownie. There is a way in which I have a plan can actually be a brownie if it's like there are adults in the room, they know what they're doing, and they, you know, the details of that plan, then, then yes, that becomes recipe. But the notion that someone knows how to get this done, that's a brownie. Hmm. But if it shifted away, you know, if it shifted toward like, yes, we plan as a funny hashtag. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Free advice for the warring campaign. Uh, right, yeah. Good stuff. Man, they're listening, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, Bated breath. <laughs> before we move on, because I, I really, I'm sure everyone wants to hear your advice around um, the impeachment dialogue, but I am super curious. I want to hear just the, the basic bullet points of that message that is for that elusive Obama-Trump voter and also for those disenfranchised communities who we don't often engage with, or at least early enough. Yeah. So the essence of race class narrative RCN is a recognition that politics is not solitaire. And we do not have the luxury of making our opposition shut up. So we have to consider both how our words are affecting people, but also how they are acting as a rejoinder to the rest of what people are hearing. Mm -hmm. And so the birth of the race class narrative, which really came about um, when I partnered up with a Berkeley law professor named Ian Haney Lopez, who wrote the book Dog Whistle Politics, was a recognition that the architecture of the right-wing narrative is this race baiting, is this racially coded speech of shaming and blaming people of color, whether it's an OG dog whistle, like a culture of people expecting handouts, Mm -hmm. or it's, you know, a newer one like shithole countries or illegal immigrants, which is sort of in between new and old. The name of the game is make people look the other way from who's actually stealing the cookies by pointing your finger at whoever you feel like. And usually that is racially coded, but it can be single moms. It can be women who are, you know, seeking to control their own reproductive destinies. Like you can mix and match. It's a choose your own adventure of who you want to scapegoat (laughs) for the right. So what the race class narrative does is it recognizes that that is a thing that is happening. And if you're not contending with that, then those famed Obama to Trump voters, when you're just trying to give them pure colorblind economic populism, free college, better health care, better wages. Yeah, they want those things. But at the same time, when you just try to go in with a colorblind message, they say, but we can't have those things because of immigrants. Mm. We can't have those things because people are lazy and they're cheating the system. So what the race class narrative does is it begins first in a shared value that explicitly names race. So, for example, uh, no matter what we look like or where we come from, most of us believe that people who work for a living ought to earn a living. So that's sentence one. Or whatever whatever our race, whatever our zip code, whatever's in our wallet, most of us seek to treat others the way we want to be treated. That's another kind of opening salvo. Second, it names the problem. And that is also part of sort of general best messaging practices. Progressive messages tend to make the mistake of leading with the problem. I like to call it, boy, have I got a problem for you. That's our favorite message. (laughs) Uh, So what we, so what RCN does is it's shared value first, problem second. And the way the problem is articulated is 
something along the lines, this is one example of doing it, but today, the wealthy and powerful few and the politicians they pay for divide us against each other based on what we look like or where we come from. So we'll look the other way while they continue to hoard more and more of the wealth we create, right? Or another way of expressing that is, but today, you know, corporate CEOs and a handful of politicians shame and blame black and brown people for our problems. So they pit communities against each other. So we won't join together to demand the healthcare for all that every family needs, right? It's to narrate the dog whistle and to create that connection between this is why this is especially acute for black and brown and other communities of color, but also it's screwing all of us, right? Right. And then finally, as a third step, it turns to cross-racial solidarity as a way to essentially fight plutocracy, right? By joining together across racial differences, we can elect leaders who believe and govern for every one of us, no exception. So that's sort of the structure of the message. That's really smart. And it's really seeking to counter the, the greatest lie that devil ever told is that we're against each other. That's, not not that we're against the people at the top. Yeah. I mean, the number of times, like, you know, the idea that Juan took your job when Juan's sitting outside the Home Depot trying to make, you know, two right. bucks off of day labor, Jeff Bezos took your job. And mm-hmm. as long as you're pointing your finger at the brown guy, you're not pointing your finger at the bad guy. And that's exactly, it's the oldest trick in the book, right? Right, right? And, right. you know, it can be the Jews, it can be the Roma, it can be in in Europe, right, with the rise of the right-wing populace we see there. It's it's Muslims, it's Roma, it's refugees. Take, you know, in Brexit, we, we see it right now in the UK. Like, it, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. You um, have mentioned a couple of times, I think something that can be very frustrating for people is when the other side is telling blatant falsehoods. It sounds like you're saying we have to confront that and twist it as we're confronting it. We have to confront it and twist it. We have to call it out and shed a light on the why they're doing it. Mm -hmm. But one thing we need to take very special care not to do is directly negate it. Hmm. Because negations, we know through experiments, when people hear a negation, so immigrants are not taking your jobs, this tax is not going to bankrupt us, Muslims are not terrorists, this will not lead to greater, you know, abuse of the system. When you make a negation, people recall the assertion and can't recall whether it was true or false. Basically, Mm. the cognitive load of very, very potent words like Muslim and terrorist, you put those two things near each other and a little itty bitty word like not is inaudible. Mm. So you can't counter them by actually making a direct assertion against it. That is giving them more airtime. Every time we hold an anti-Trump rally, that is giving him more airtime. We need to tell people what we are for and not what we are against. So we see this over and over again. When we make negative demands, this is something I spend a lot of time on. So when we make negative demands and family separation, don't, you know, don't harm families, uh, abolish ICE, which let me state what I hope is obvious are things I support. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Like talking about messaging, not about uh, value or policy. I support those things. 
when we make negative demands, we actually risk being a victim of our own success. And so when we said end family separation, they began to detain families together and said we did end family separation. When you make a negative demand, you actually are at risk of being successful. So in immigration, for example, I have tested many, many times over the difference between end this, stop that, don't have this, don't do that, all of which I support. Right. And create a fair immigration process that respects all families. There's no comparison. That demand is much more mobilizing, much more sustaining. Basically, fear and anger, which is a lot of progressive messaging, burn hot, but they burn short. Mm -hmm. They can get you clicks, they can get you likes, but there are diminishing returns, especially to fear. You cannot sustain movement around fear. Those are reactive emotions. People have to feel like they are creating something good, not merely ameliorating something harmful if they're going to stay in the game. So this is like what you were saying. You start with your shared values, but then you take it a step further. So it's not just keep families together because then you end up with families in detention together. It's what is the end goal and making that part of the message. Yeah. Yeah. So in Australia, where I, um, my family and I, we spent 2015 there and did a, a few things, but the main thing I was doing was research around changing people's minds on people seeking asylum, which I say very deliberately as opposed to asylum seekers. And the situation in Australia, it can really be most easily summarized by saying that when Trump was newly elected and had a phone call with then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and learned about these offshore prisons that they have been operating for decades, uh, he was like, wow, that's great. And I'm going to start doing right. that. That's mm. that's where he was inspired, if one can use that verb. So <laughs> in Australia, when you think about what an actual audacious demand is, we think here in the US that abolish ICE is an audacious demand. That's considered a left flank demand. Mm -hmm. That's not a left flank demand. If we abolished ICE, they would have Border Patrol do that job, or they would have the National Guard, or the, you know they would they would just make a new Gestapo, like they would just create a completely brand new agency doing the exact same thing. Absolutely, yeah. An actual left flank demand, like we issued in Australia, was bring them here. Can you imagine a future in which the California congressional delegation and the New York congressional delegation were having an active fight? saying, no, we want more immigrants. No, we want more immigrants. No, bring them here. No, bring them here. Which is an affirmation, not of a grudging, they're victims, we need to help them, they're so poor. All of which, when you do participatory research like I do, you learn that the effect, people don't want to be talked about like that. That is not actually people's self-identity. If you have walked here with a child from Honduras, like, I'm sorry, but that that is the embodiment of making a way out of no way that is the embodiment of when the going gets tough the tough get going i can't get my kids to school on time and i have a car <laughs> <laughs> so this idea that they are hapless you know victims and of course i want to be clear obviously they're victimized like we are we are destroying these people but it doesn't work like you can't win on sympathy Sympathy-based arguments, which by definition are otherizing. When you're asking people, feel sorry for those people. Mm. Feel sorry, sorry for people seeking asylum. Feel sorry for people who are homeless. Feel sorry for people who have um, addiction to drugs. When you're asking people to feel sorry for those people, 
They are by definition not you. And so campaigns that actually do work flip away from sympathy to empathy and talk about what we share in common and what that motivation and drive is. They're also much more accurate. I just... I mean, you can feel, you can tell I'm very passionate about, I just, it's very upsetting to me that we force people to perform their pain for us as a condition of accepting their humanity. And I think it's unacceptable. Mm. Well, let's take all that and apply it to the big thing going on right now and what you were just in DC consulting on. And that's this uh, impeachment. Oh, is that happening? Yeah. It was on the news. I saw. (laughs) Oh, okay. You were talking to the Senate staffers about impeachment, but not just for them, but just for the person who's with their family or talking to their neighbors. Like, what's your recommendation for how we talk about impeachment right now? Yeah. So let me first make an honest confession, which is that anyone who is telling you that they actually know how to talk about impeachment is full of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Helpful. Yeah. The idea that there is actually an answer on something that is a, I mean, it's a moving object, right? Like, and I like to think of myself as an empiricist. Drew Weston says empiricism is the best possible cure for ego. And I really feel (laughs) like any genius I ever thought that I had has been sucked out of me by watching people in focus groups (laughs) be like, who wrote this message? What is this shit? This is stupid, right? And there's there's not a lot of empirical data on on this at all. And especially what's going on right now. Yeah. So with that caveat aside, right, Mm -hmm. that like, Anyone who's like, I know the answer. Like, you should very much be deeply suspicious of that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> However, there are things that What's we can... What's the answer? <laughs> <laughs> However, A, there is some polling. B, there are lessons that we can apply from more general research that we've conducted on perception, persuasion, kind of the kinds of things that people need to hear. So that is where these answers come from. Number one... um, really, really important to to grab the moral high ground. So rather than talking about this as has been done dominantly, although this is falling away, thank goodness, as no one is above the law, which is a much more sort of practical, pragmatic, it's mo- more effective to say, this is protecting our democracy, this is about who we are as a nation, this is about your oath, sort of those higher order principles. Because, you know, what is the law, right? Like, people speak, like, there are laws and there are laws. Hmm. Number two, what is missing from the debate, and and this was both advice I gave to the Senate chiefs and um, I would give to any group, what's missing from the debate is any discourse about who we will be after. So when we say, for example, when we make the demand impeach and remove – Remove is a vacuum, and nature and humans abhor a vacuum. Remove doesn't tell us what happens the next morning. And so when we leave people in a state of fear, what what is that going to look like? What is that going to be? Like, he just, he gets marched out of the white, like, what is what is that? Do we end up with Pence? Right. Do we end up with Pence? We need to include in our message something like remove and revive or remove and restore our democracy and to provide a message that says listen we've been through hard times before this country has weathered many storms 
sometimes well, sometimes less well. And when we have stood together, we have come out the other side, a stronger nation. And we will get through this too. We will get to the bottom. We will get to the truth. We will get to what is right. And we will be a stronger nation. So the 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 message is missing sort of what happens post. Some, someone needs to give that sense mm. of reassurance that there is an adult in the room that knows what the hell to do. And then the third thing that I would say is that generally speaking, uh, second person direct address is always the most powerful thing. So instead of saying, for example, um, you know, if I'm imagining myself in the role of a senator, um, instead of saying, you know, he violated our constitution, he harmed our nation, he, you know, is is putting our nation in peril, etc. I would say he betrayed you. He is endangering you and your family. Mm -hmm. He is endangering the people who voted for him and the people who voted for me. And if he is going to make a mockery of our nation and put your life at risk and your security at risk and everything that you believe and your children's future at risk, he's going to have to go through me to do it mm -hmm. because I am here to protect you. So instead of I am here to protect the Constitution, I'm here to uphold my oath, I'm here to uphold the nation, always to bring it back to that you so that the listener feels like, oh, this is why I need to be paying attention to this and I need to do something about it. I'm... I'm convinced now. That's great. I, I really do think he should be impeached now. I'm so glad. You just turned my brain right where it was all the time. I, I'm excited to see uh, the, the messaging that's going to be, be coming out. It'll be... Uh, well, well, that be is operating in the fantasy world right. in which... <laughs> um, in which, yeah, like... Yeah, lots of people ask for my advice and then... Well, there's so many layers, political layers and just personal layers, the opportunity to have a national audience when you're asking questions and have that spotlight on you uh, definitely is going to color how someone communicates, right? Yeah, and also I think, and I mean, I'm not a senator, right? So like, what do I know about those pressures? Thank goodness. Mm. I mean, nobody wants me to be a senator. <laughs> And so I don't pretend to understand like what all of those competing pressures are. But I think that th there's another principle of communication, which I talked to them about, which they were pretty like, mm, that sounds kind of nutty, which we call messaging from inevitability, which means that the more far-fetched your thing is, the more it seems like this couldn't possibly ever happen, the more you actually have to speak about it as a matter not of if, but when. Okay. The Obama campaign did this remarkably marriage equality right so when marriage equality stopped being like this is a very contentious issue and people feel all sorts of kinds of ways about it and you know they're attacking us and we need these rights and protections because lots of people are opposed to this when we keep talking about how big goliath is mm. and how much this is a lost cause i mean that's basically the democratic approach right boy if i got a problem for you this is the titanic would you like to buy a ticket we're the losing team we lose a lot we lost recently so you should join us that is sort of the standard message. I'm so sad right now. <laughs> I mean, I'm just telling you what is, I'm not telling you what I, that's not my right. advice. That is my right. criticism. Right. right. That's my diagnosis. Yeah. So what we need to be doing is saying when we remove this president, when we restore order, when we revive our democracy, when we prevail. 
And understandably, they're like, how are we going to say that when that's not what's going to happen? Mm. I'm like, listen, it's pretty much always a fake it till you make it kind of a moment. And if you want people to get on board this train, you have to tell them that it has a plausible destination, not mm. that it is a lost cause. And that is something that the right wing, I mean, there are so many things that they do incredibly effectively, but they just decide that they, that their ideas are popular and true. You know, they don't repeat their lies in order to be believed. They repeat their lies in order to be repeated. Hmm. Because it is through the repetition we know from studies of cognition, information that is repeated more frequently is rated over time more true. Uh, fascinating. So for the the people who are going to be going out next year and canvassing. Thank you. Who um, uh, don't have access to empirical data or uh, a genius messaging expert. Um, they'll go out with a script that's going to have some information that was poll tested by the candidate that they're supporting. And then they're going to have that window where they can speak from their hearts. Do you have any advice for when when they do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, if if it's okay, I can give practical advice, That'd which is that absolutely. I mean, the practical side of the advice is that every piece of research that I do that I'm allowed to make public, I make public. So the race class mm -hmm. narrative, the scripts right. are all completely and totally accessible. They're on my website. Um, on my own podcast website is every kind of message test we did behind every campaign that we won. And that's what we profile on Brave New Words. So that information is available. Like there is. We'll link all of yeah. that on our page as well. Okay. ASOcommunications.com has right. all those great resources. Yeah. So for, and that's what I mean by practical. There's a handbook there called Messaging This mm -hmm. Moment that goes through say this, don't say that. So first of all, some practical advice. And right. then what does that sound like? Um, First of all, understand that ordering matters, that you need to start with a shared value first, mm -hmm. then problem, then solution, not problem first. Mm -hmm. Use direct address as much as you can. You, 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 you. Bring the listener into the thing. And then another technique that you can use is, again, it's sort of a permutation on fake it till you make it. You assume that the person believes and wants what you believe and want, okay. even mm. if your rap sheet says they don't, ah. because then you force them into defense. So you say, it's so great to meet you, Steve. I just, it's really wonderful, you know, to be among people in this community who agree that no matter what we look like or where we come from, when someone we love is ill or injured, we want them to get the very best care without going bankrupt to get it. Right. And we know that the way we achieve that is Medicare for all. And it's just incredible to have a partner in that idea because it's going to take all of us. And then you force them to be like, I don't believe that. I'm yeah. not a partner in that. <laughs> Rather than going into the conversation with trepidation or being like, you know, people have different views on this and they're not sure and there could be disagreements. What mm -hmm. I think is... When you do that, you open up for them permission to have shitty views. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you can actually force people to be their better angels. I mean, we, we do this through experimentation. For example, when we say to people, as caring people, we do X, Y, Z. Right. If you begin a sentence by saying, as caring people, blah, 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 people are more likely 
to to, to donate exhibit to exhibit behavior. that because they don't want to have to walk it back from that label. So you basically just pretend the person <laughs> believes what you need them to believe. And you confidently go from there as opposed to opening up this, I'm out here because people have differences of opinion and I know you might be hearing other things, which I understand is an instinct that we have because we want to seem like, you know, not in people's faces or not too brash. Right. But that actually, what that does is it, it's funny, you know, that statistic that, that people report all the time, 97 out of 100 climate scientists have studied the data and it's real and, and it's person made, blah, blah, blah. Yep. What that statistic does is it actually says to people, oh, there's still debate. Hmm. There's still some scientists who don't think. Oh, my God. <laughs> You're actually <laughs> opening that up by saying 97%. Instead of saying the science is conclusive and anyone who has studied this phenomenon understands and knows, or all of us believe that our climate is deeply damaged and under peril and we need to act now. Like you have to just pretend they already think that. I love that. That resonates so strong with me. And I, mm. I feel like I do that. Um, I feel like I play dumb mm. a lot. Exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Make them force them to actually have to articulate their terrible views. Right. Don't do it for them. And to your earlier point, instead of leading with a negative about a problem, you're now setting them up to have to be negative about what you're saying. Absolutely. It was, again, you know, one of the major, major um, pivots in from gay marriage, as we used to call it, to marriage equality was a movement away from practical benefits, rights like married filing jointly and hospital visitation to love. It's one thing to be anti-married filing jointly. It is another thing to be anti-love. If you are team love and you are team love makes a family, then your opponent has to be like, I don't care about love. Well, you've, you've just, there's <laughs> so much. And, uh, I, I wish we should do like a five-part series on this because right. it's... My answers need to be shorter. No, but they're so fascinating. And or I'm, people could also listen to Brave New Words. That's what they should do. Um, let's ask you one more question, though, before you go. And this is what we ask everybody on the podcast. What brings you hope? Well, I just came from D.C., so that's a hard question. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, the results of 2018 give me hope. 2019... Kentucky, Virginia, give me hope. But I think more than anything, people give me hope. People who are awakened and newly emergent and deciding that they're mad as hell and ain't going to take it anymore. And they are going to take their lives and their communities and their neighbors' lives into their own hands and stand up for each other. Um, I think the wave of activism that we see through Swing Left and other kinds of organizations that are mobilizing people, that is what gives me hope. I, I mean, I continue to believe that the many can, in fact, vanquish the money if the many are united. Hmm. Well said. Before we go, we want to thank everybody. Um, we had our December fundraising drive for Swing Left. Mm -hmm. We mentioned it a few times on the podcast. It yeah. felt very like NPR, <laughs> <laughs> you know, drive, drivey. But uh, we had a half million dollar goal to raise right? in December. And? Blew it out of the water 
thanks to all of the generous donors who donated. We raised $670,000, more than that. Damn, that's a lot of money. Yeah, that's incredible. We're in a great position heading into 2020. Thanks to all of you that donated. Your donation is going to help us grow field programs in all 12 of our super states, connect volunteers all over the country with our strategic actions, and defeat the GOP. Well done, everybody. Thank you so much. So generous. Thank you for joining us today and for stepping up and taking action. This is how we win in 2020. Yes. How are you getting 2020 ready? Send us a note or even record yourself and email it to podcast at swingleft.org. Now, if you aren't a subscriber yet, just go ahead and subscribe and rate us on Apple. You'll get an automatic notification when the new podcasts come out. Uh, Share us with your friends, family, neighbors, everybody. Use the hashtag HowWeWin2020. Share our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, now is the time to sign up and volunteer. It really is. We really appreciate you being here with us. And we'll be back next week with more strategy and inspiration from the field. See you then. Everybody should definitely come to Baltimore. We had to find a different way to put our passion to work. If you love your job and love what you do, every day goes on as you want it. I think how we look at art can be world-changing. All of these businesses are taking precautions to make sure that everyone is safe. We're ready. Masks, distancing, and frequent cleaning are just the beginning. Learn more at Baltimore.org.